All right, well, good morning. Welcome to River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. It is good to be with you. Uh, great. I'm just thankful to join you for worship this morning. Uh, if there, if you, uh, especially if you are new or visiting, I just want to say especially welcome. Glad you are with us. And uh, if there's anything that we can do to serve you or help you get connected to the community here at River City, we would genuinely love to do that. So come find me or somebody else around here. We, we would love to get to know you. So... Um, as always, I'm excited to open God's Word with you guys again together this morning, uh, especially so this week because we get to start a brand new series, working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so basically from now through the end of the summer, the next 30 weeks or so, uh, we are just going to be walking our way verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians and uh, this, uh, this letter by the Apostle Paul written to the church in the city of Corinth. And, and as I've spent the last couple of weeks studying in preparation for our series, um, and I can't tell you just like how much God has been teaching me and growing me and challenging me in, in, in a lot of this. And, and there's so much that I've been learning, so much I'm excited to share, share with you. But, but as always, I am struck continually by how timeless and yet how incredibly timely the word of God is because this 2,000 year old letter is anything but outdated. In fact, as we'll read through it over the course of the next six months or so, there are just continually issues that, that meet us in the very midst of the things that we are going through in our own world, in our own culture, in our own society. And God's word has such incredibly timeless and yet timely truth for us that if we might see it and believe it and live in response to it, there would be incredible life there. And so I, I cannot wait to study that with you and, and to walk through so much of that with you. So, um, But before we dive into the book itself, I want to spend just a little bit of time setting up some of the background and the context for, for the city of Corinth and the book of 1 Corinthians itself. Now, before we even dive into that, it's important to know that um, 1 Corinthians is actually technically Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth out of four. We have two of them. Uh, we see in Scripture that there's a reference to another two, uh, my guess is Paul got a little too feisty and the Spirit's like, nah, that ain't from me, right? So, uh, so we got two of the letters. This is the second one, and, and uh, so it's important to just know that a little bit. And so at the time Paul's writing this letter, um, it's roughly 55 AD, right? And so he had come to Corinth about five years previous and planted this church there. And then he had moved, he had stayed there about 18 months and then moved on to uh, the city of Ephesus where he was at work for the next couple of years. And so he's getting reports about what's going on in this church. And so it's about five years after he started. And so he's writing this letter back to them. And, and so that's a little bit of context for the letter. But, but what's even more important that we understand, I think is the context for the city of Corinth itself. You see, Corinth was, was uh, at the time of the writing of this letter, was basically this incredible, like, is basically a boom town, right? Think of, like, uh, San Francisco uh, during the gold rush, right? Like, tons of people are coming there and moving into this place, right? It's a place of incredible affluence, and it's like a new money kind of place, and and so, and so the, the reason why this was such a, why Corinth was such a bustling boom town was really twofold. The first is because it had this incredibly strategic location. You see, Corinth is located on this narrow strip of land that connects basically the, the Greek mainland with the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And you can look on a map to see what that looks like. But 
it's not all it's really important to understand is that it's a super strategic point when it comes to trade. So, and so it kind of made it kind of the de facto port city for east-west trade, basically between Rome and basically the, the western part of the Mediterranean, or the, actually the eastern part of the Mediterranean. And so it's kind of the, the de facto port city for that area. And so huge amounts of goods and therefore money and, and culture and all that kind of stuff flowed through the, the two Corinthian ports on either side of this isthmus, right? And so it's kind of this five-mile kind of isthmus. And so now you might be thinking to yourself, if Corinth is in such a strategic location, why is it a boom town? Like, doesn't it seem like that should have been established like long ago, like they would have found that as a great location and just like used it long ago. And you would be right, except for the fact that Rome had conquered and destroyed the city about 200 years prior to Paul writing this letter. And they basically let it sit abandoned, um, kind of as a consequences for, for the people that were there. And, and then they had let it sit abandoned for about 100 years before they, they rebuilt the city and resettled it with Roman, uh, with Roman people. They were mostly Roman slaves that had been freed, or, or freedmen, and, and also uh, army veterans. And so for, the ba- for the, basically the, ba- the past 80, 100 years or so, Corinth had basically been a brand new city, started kind of basically from scratch again. And it was full of people who had this incredibly aspirational mindset, right? Slaves who had been set free, army veterans who are kind of finishing their career in the army and setting up new lives and all that kind of stuff. And so it was full of this aspirational and upwardly mobile people who, who, were, who had gotten an opportunity basically to make new lives for themselves, And all of this was happening in one of the most culturally important and economically lucrative places in the earth at the time. And so Corinth was this incredible city for all these ways. And and that context is really important because this, this deeply aspirational and upwardly mobile mindset, that was at the very core of the culture in Corinth. That was the thing that was kind of undergirded everything that was going on. It affected every part of life. See, everything revolved, in Corinth, everything revolved around climbing the social or economic ladder or, or maintaining your place at the top. It's the thing that everyone cared the most about. One commentator sums it up this way. He writes, he says, the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the reckless development of the individual. Everybody's there. They're trying to make a life for themselves. They're, they're trying to climb the ladder to get recognition and wealth and fame and prestige. And, and they're in a place where that can really happen. It's a mindset, I think, that's, that's epitomized by this monument that was located at the very center of the city. It was a, erected by a guy named Babius. And, and this, the, the inscription that he had written on the, on the top and the bottom of this huge monument had a bunch of columns in it. Like It was a, it was a big deal, right? It read this, it said, uh, it had his name, Gnaeus Babius Philinius. it says, commissioner and overseer of religion, he said, had this monument erected at his own expense, and he approved it in his official capacity as the mayor, or as the magistrate in the city. And we can tell a lot about Babius and a lot about the Corinthian culture from that inscription. First thing we see is that he's, he's an important leader in the city, right? He's described as the commissioner, the overseer of religion, as well as the, the mayor or the magistrate. And so he was an influential and powerful person. And he was really committed to making sure people knew that 
and making sure people remembered that. He, he really did not want people to forget that. The other thing we see is he, he's also incredibly wealthy, right? He had this monument erected at his own expense, which I can guarantee you was not cheap. You see some pictures of this thing. It was pretty impressive. And since he didn't mention his father or his family line, what we, what we can basically infer is that he was a slave who had, who had got his own freedom and then basically made himself wealthy through trade in the area, right? And so in other words, Babius is kind of like a self-made millionaire, right? And so he's really committed to making sure people knew that and remembered who he was and his journey and, and what his story was, right? And basically, the, the Babius monument was all about promoting Babius, it's his kind of started from the bottom, now we're here anthem, right? Like that's, like that's his line, right? It's like the ancient world inscription version of that, right? And this perfectly reflected the Corinthian culture. One commentator, he writes it this way, he says, Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. The Corinthian people lived with an honor-shame culture orientation where public recognition was more important even than facts. In such a culture, a person's sense of worth is based on recognition by others of one's accomplishments, hence this incredible self-promoting public inscriptions like we see in the Babius Monument. You see, in Corinth, there was this endless fixation with climbing the social ladder, with, with moving up the ladder of society and economically, and, and, and it all hinged on how others perceived you. And, and this idea, it permeated every part of Corinthian culture from the top to the bottom. It wasn't just the Babiuses at the top. It was everyone else who wanted to get there as well. And tragically, what we see in the letter of 1 Corinthians is that this ideology the church in Corinth was no exception to that. And as you can imagine, that wasn't exactly a recipe for a healthy church situation. In fact, what we're going to see throughout our letter is a deeply, profoundly flawed church. I mean, this place is straight up a mess. I'm like talking like bordering on dumpster fire level of like it is it is a hot pile of craziness going on here, right? There are massive divisions and factions that have formed within the church based on which leader they think is the most impressive. They, they are so divided that they can't solve their own problems even amongst themselves. And so they're taking each other to court, which was in that day an even more broken justice system than the one that we have in, uh, even today. They, they're participating in drunken orgies and sleeping with temple prostitutes and they're, they're just like, hey, we have, we're free to do what we want to do, right? One guy, he's having an incestual relationship with his mother-in-law. Everybody knows about it. Nobody wants to talk about it, right? They, they clearly love themselves more than they love anything else. In their worship gatherings, they, they love impressing one another with their speaking skills or, or with their spiritual gifts. They love boasting about how much better they are than everyone else and how more impressive they're spiritual gifts are than, than other people's spiritual gifts. The, the rich people in this church are, are excluding the poor people from communion and getting drunk on communion wine. I mean, rough, right? Like, it, it is rough. There is, there is some serious stuff going on here. And when you read through the letter at first, it can seem like Paul is just kind of like trying to put out one unrelated fire after the next. 
Like, it's just, it's just a hot mess here. But when you look a little closer, what you see is that most, if not all, of the issues in the Corinthian church come back to this one central issue. You see, while they had believed the message of the gospel and they were saved by faith in the person and the work of Jesus, their lives and their community were not being ongoingly formed by the truths of the gospel. You see, instead what we see is that their lives and their community were being formed by the values and the ethos of the culture that they found themselves in. The highest priorities of the Corinthian culture had become the, they, they were the highest priorities in the, in the culture of the church as well. And this idolatrous fixation on upward mobility and climbing the social and economic ladder, it was alive and well in this young church. And their lives reveal that their own social advancement, rather than the gospel's advancement, was their highest and top priority what we see is that it was utterly crippling their faith. More than that, it was crippling their witness to a watching world. And I lay all that out to you this morning because understanding that context is not not only important for understanding the letter as a whole, but because it makes Paul's introduction to this letter all the more striking. You see, because this letter, it opens not with correction, It opens not with rebuke. It opens not with outrage. Paul opens this letter with a a paragraph of thanksgiving, one of encouragement. That is absolutely the last thing you would think he would open this letter with. See, he gets to correction. He gets to rebuke. We'll get there. He's got a lot to say to this young church. But he doesn't start there. See, and what I want you to see this morning as we begin our study in 1 Corinthians is Paul's reminder to this church of the incredible identity and hope that they have. You see, it's an identity that they have not because of their own effort or their own aptitude. It's an identity they have not because of their own impressiveness or because they are worthy of it. It's it's not because of their success. Rather, it's in spite of all of their failures. And it is because of the person and the work of Jesus alone. And it is good news that this church desperately needed to be reminded of. And I think as well, as much as we would like to distinguish ourselves from these Corinthian Christians and and their culture and their problems, I think the reality is, is that we are not all that different from them. You see, and the good news of God's grace is the one thing that can transform us ongoingly. And it's good news they needed to hear, and it's good news you and I need to hear as well. And so with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll dive into our passage as we just read this brief introduction this morning and and study it briefly together. God, thank you for your word, and thank you for keeping it for us so that in it we might know you. And God, we, uh, we just come humbly this morning, and we ask that you would be gracious to speak to us through your word. God, thank you that you wanted the Corinthians to know you and to live in light of you. And even in the mess of all that their church was, God, you loved them and pursued them and longed for their good. God, as we come to study this letter these next six months or so, God, we, we, we want to come humbly to it, recognizing that we are far more like this church than we would love to admit, and that we need these words just as much as they did 2,000 years ago. 
God, and so we, we ask that you would graciously empower us to hear your words. God, give me what I need to be able to teach and preach rightly. God, this morning and over the course of our series, God, enable us to hear and respond rightly to your word. There are such hard things in this letter. God, but there are things that we need to hear because they're from you. And so, God, we ask that you would enable us to receive the truth of your word. God, this morning and every morning as we study it, we need you for that. We cannot do it on our own. And so, God, for our good and for your great glory as we study your word, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 9 this morning. Begins this way, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with knowledge and God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus to be revealed. And he will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. For God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so to a, to, to a church that is basically falling apart at the seams because of their, their, their being formed by the culture's goal of, of gaining an identity through climbing the social or economic ladder of their day, Paul begins his letter with a reminder about their true identity. And from beginning to end in these first nine verses, what we see is that it has everything to do with Jesus it has everything to do with him. It begins in verse 2. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. That's, that's the people, not the building, by the way. The church is God's people gathered together. He says, so to the church in Corinth, so God's people says, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. That word sanctified, it means to be set apart or to be made holy. And Paul's writing, he says, their identity in spite of everything that's going on in this dysfunctional church, in, in spite of all the ways that they are living radically unholy lives, that they are God's holy people who have been set apart by Jesus for Jesus. It's not an accident Paul begins here with their, how their identity isn't rooted in their performance, but it's rooted in Jesus' performance on their behalf, right? He has sanctified them. He, they didn't sanctify themselves. He did it, and he set them apart to be his people. What's especially interesting, I think, in verse 3 is because the Corinthians have this tendency towards self-centeredness and disunity. Paul reminds them that it's not just them that have that identity as God's holy people. It's, it's all those who will call on the name of Jesus as their Lord, as their King, of whom that identity is true. And so they have this identity as, as God's set-apart people who've been set apart by God himself 
But that's just the tip of the iceberg. You see, Jesus hasn't just sanctified this very unsaintly church. Verse 3 and 4, we see that he has extended grace and peace to them. In verse 5 and 7, we see he's enriched them in every way. They're, they're not lacking in any spiritual gift. What we'll see is that they have incredible spiritual gifts. And, and this church has, has, God's blessed them incredibly. They're, they're wildly misusing it. But God's blessed them incredibly. Verse 8, we see that it's in Christ that God sustains them to the end. He's promised to make this radically guilty church guiltless on the day of the Lord Christ Jesus' return. In verse 9, Paul says that he is absolutely sure of their identity. And he's sure of their security in this identity. He says, because God is faithful. And he's called you into a relationship, into fellowship of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Not because of anything that they have done. In fact, in spite of them. In spite of them. In short, the basis for Paul's encouragement to this Corinthian church is, is that their identity, both past and present and future, it has been confirmed and declared and enriched and sustained by Jesus himself. All of the realities that Paul, Paul's surprising encouragement of this church, are they're grounded in Christ, you see, because the reality is that the Christian's identity is not self-made. And neither is it self-maintained. You see, it's the result of an outside action of God on our behalf. I think Paul's reminding of this because he wants them to know that God's objective reality overrides their subjective experience. Christ's work on their behalf is more foundational to their identity than their ability to tarnish it through all of their failings and all of their mistakes. One commentator sums it up this way. He writes, Paul is essentially saying, look, Corinthian church, you may be falling apart at the seams, but the God who called you and gave you an identity has secured your past and present and future. He is holding you together. Some of you are here this morning and you feel like there is stuff going on in your lives that just separates you from God. Maybe there's sin in your life that you can't get rid of. Maybe there's just some attitude or heart level thing that you just feel stuck in and cannot be moved from and you just feel far from God. And I think God's word here is, I wanted to encourage you and to remind you that God's, the reality of your identity in Christ is far greater than anything you could do to sully it. See, God's the one who called you. He's the one who made you his people. He's the one who saves you. He's the one who sanctifies you. In the end, he will be the one who glorifies you. And in the end, he will get all of the credit for doing it. And so what is true about your relationship with him is not overridden by your mistakes and your failures. I guarantee you this church needed to hear that. Because as much as we try to forget our mistakes and forget our failures can't ever get rid of them. I think this church needed to be reminded that the truth about who God says they are overrides who, who they have acted to be. You see, Paul's reminding this faltering church that they don't need to climb the social or economic ladder to get or maintain an identity. They have been given this incredible identity as God's holy people. The king of the universe, the one who has created everyone and everything, has called them to be his. 
has set them apart as his own, has given them an, an identity and a calling and a purpose that is far greater than anything their culture could ever give them. It's a, it's a better identity than climbing the social ladder of Corinthian culture could ever have given them. It's an identity that didn't, didn't, didn't depend on their impressiveness. In fact, as we see Paul lay out in the coming weeks, it's an identity God gives them in spite of their utter unimpressiveness. It's an identity that's far superior to one they could attain by climbing their culture's ladder because unlike the fragile and insecure identity that comes from being on top of that ladder, you see, it's one that is secure and unchanging. It's an identity that you can't mess up, that they could not lose because it was given to them, not earned. And they don't maintain it. God does. He's the one that is keeping them and sustaining them not only the one who's called them. And I don't know about you, but I think that would have been such incredibly good news to this church. I hope it's good news to you this morning. You see, remember, I, I talked earlier about that guy named Babius and the monument that he built, right? He builds this incredible monument, and he, he inscribes his story on this monument. He wants to make sure everybody knows who he is and what he's done and, and why he's impressive and why he should be respected and and I don't know about you, the thing, but the thing that's most striking to me about this monument is not Babius' impressiveness, but his utter insecurity. You see, this guy's clearly at the top of the social and economic ladder in Corinth. He had power and influence and wealth and prestige, and he did it all himself. And what you see is that he is so insecure he needs to build an entire monument out of stone and inscribe it multiple times so that nobody will miss it, how great of a guy he is and how impressive he is and how important he is and how wealthy he is and how respectable he should be. You see, what's clear is that he is deathly afraid of losing the identity he has worked so hard to get. Babius knew there was only so much room at the top of the ladder, and there were endless people who, just like he had been, whose highest goal was to get to the spot that he was in. And he's arrived. He has all the things that everyone in that culture was looking for. And what you see is that he's not satisfied. He's not secure. It hasn't given him what he was looking for. You see, he's not just con now he's not consumed by getting to the top of the ladder. Now what he's consumed by is staying at the top. There's no life there. There's no joy there. There's no peace there. There's just endless insecurity. You see, it's this endless cycle you see, and I think Paul's introduction to this letter, it flies in the face of the Babius monument and the Corinthian ideal that that monument heralds, right? That, that the way that the way to life, the way to the, the thing that should be desired most is to be respected by others, the, to climb the ladder and to have wealth and recognition, that that's the thing that will really fulfill and satisfy and give life and Paul reminds them of this incredible identity that they have in Christ. It's an identity that's so far superior to anything their culture could ever give them. You see, but Paul's words this morning, they're not just a reminder. They're an invitation. It's an invitation that's going to get flushed out over the course of this whole letter. 
The invitation is simply this. Stop trying to climb the ladder. You don't even want what's at the top. Instead, you have been given an identity that could never get surpassed. You've been given an identity and a calling and a purpose as God's holy people that is so far superior to anything this culture could ever give you. And so instead of climbing the ladder to try to get an identity that will never satisfy and fulfill, he encourages them to rest in the identity that they have because of the person and the work of Jesus. An identity they have in, not because of themselves, but in spite of themselves. He wants them to rest in their identity that they have in Christ as his holy people. Here's the thing. When you rest in that identity... You see, something happens. Something wildly countercultural happens. Because, like Jesus, instead of always trying to go up the ladder, what happens is you find yourself choosing to go down it. And what you find at the bottom of the ladder isn't insecurity, isn't hopelessness, it isn't, it isn't any of those things. What you find at the bottom of the ladder is Jesus Himself. the great king of the universe who made himself nothing for you so that you might find real life and real joy and real peace not just for you but for others as well. You see, some of you are here this morning and you have been desperately trying to make an identity for yourself. You've been trying to climb whatever ladder it is that you think will give you the identity, whether it's your career or respect of others or whether it's a financial ladder or whatever it might be. You've been trying desperately to climb the ladder to get an identity for yourself. And God's word here is reminding you this morning that that identity will never give you what you want. But there's good news because God's already invited you and given you an identity as his called people if you've put your faith in him, an identity that is far superior than anyone you could ever earn for yourself. Others of you are here this morning and you know the identity that you have in Christ. And you know that you are his called people and you know that it's a better identity than you could get from anywhere else, but you're not resting in it. You feel like you need to add on to it. You feel like it's, for some reason, not enough, and you need to add to it the respect of others, or you need to add to it a financial security, or you need to add to it some career goals so that you might really feel secure. And I want to invite you to rest in the identity that Jesus gives you, not because of who you are, but in spite of who you are. Some of you are here this morning and your, your lives look pretty good on the outside. And you'll be tempted to, to read this letter to the Corinthian church with eyes of, of self-righteousness. Looking down on the people in this church thinking, wow, that is a hot mess. How could they ever have gotten there? You see, and I think Paul's letter in the very beginning is reminding those of us who are in that situation that all that we have whatever level of holiness we might, that we might have, whatever level of sanctification we might have, you didn't do it yourself. 
It's Jesus who has done it for you. Everything you have, whatever material, whatever spiritual standing you have, everything, Jesus is the one who has given it to you. You see, and what the gospel does is it humbles the proud and it encourages the weak and the brokenhearted. You see, because the identity that we all long for and so, des- and so desperately need is one that Jesus freely gives. And it's one that gives life to all of us who without him are dead in our sin. And so Jesus saves and he sanctifies and he sustains. And in the end, he will get all of the glory for doing all of that. And there is incredible life and encouragement in it. You see, in the invitation of this letter is that we might rest in the identity that we have in Jesus. That we might be freed from the need to climb whatever ladders we feel the need to climb and instead be freed to descend those same ladders for the good of others, for the joy of others, for our own joy as well. That we might follow in the path of Jesus himself who did not, who did not as Philippians says, did not count equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. There's a life there that can be found nowhere else. That is a truth this Corinthian church so desperately needed to hear. And I think it's one that you and I need to be reminded of as well this morning. See, communion, it reminds us of the person and the work of Jesus as we take it every week. It reminds us that the the identity that we have as God's holy called people comes not through our own performance, but through his performance on our behalf. And with the bread, we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us and he lived the life that we should have lived. And with the drink, we remember that his blood was shed for us as he died the death that you and I deserve to die. And we remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf and all it accomplishes for us. And it reminds us of how worthy Jesus is of our lives given to him. Every ounce, every corner, every part of them. Given not to the pursuit of our own advancement and our own glory, but given endlessly to the pursuit of his glory and the advancing of his gospel to the ends of the earth. You see, communion doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't, save your, it doesn't change your status or your standing with God in any way. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus. And so that in remembering who he is and all that he has done for us, that we would be filled with all the power and motivation that we would need to keep pursuing him, that we would be reminded of the identity we have in him that cannot be earned and cannot be taken and cannot be merited and cannot be lost. And it invites us to reject the lies our culture wants us to believe. That if we climb the ladders, we'll get what we're looking for. We'll have an identity and security and a hope that we can't find somewhere else. And the community reminds us we have an identity that's better than anything we could ever have earned ourselves. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus, then to give you an identity and maintain your identity for you. And whenever you're ready... I'd encourage you to take communion. If you miss the elements, they're on the, in the foyer on a table. You can grab some on the way out. 
And so take those in remembrance of all that Jesus has done for you and, and the identity that his life and his death by faith on your behalf secures for you. But if not yet, if you're still here this morning and you're figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to receive an identity from him, I encourage you to hold off on taking communion this morning. You are welcome here. You're welcome in this community. But God's not after rituals. He's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that is surrendered to him, who hopes in him and trusts in him alone. And so receive him before you receive communion. As we take communion this morning, I want to encourage you to talk with God. Be honest with him. Confess to him the ladders that you feel like you need to climb. Confess to him the identities that you are trying to make for yourself or attain for yourself and ask him by his grace to remind you of the identity he offers you freely in the person and the work of Jesus. Ask him as well to help you to rest in that identity so that you might be able to join Jesus in going down the ladders in our culture. God, showing our world where real life and real joy and real peace is found for your good and for his great glory. So that and let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning and God, and we need you and we need your word to keep shaping us and transforming us. And, and so God, we ask by your grace that you would cause it to. Now we just confess that there are so many places we look to for identity other than you and so many ladders that we are trying to climb to, to get an identity and a purpose and a calling from somewhere or something. And Jesus, we just confess that none of it can give us what we're looking for. Ah, oh, but you have called us, set us apart to be your people. There is no higher calling. There is no greater honor. There is no more secure hope than that. And so Jesus, for our good and for your great glory, would you help us to find and rest in the identity you give us so that we might descend the ladders in our culture, God, for your glory, that it might be known and so that we might find the life and joy and peace we are looking for so desperately in following you, Jesus. To that end, we pray. Amen.